0: Clouston, where we tell you about a crime that happened near where we live, in the best city in the world, Houston. I'm your host, Kat, and he's my... I don't remember.
1: (laughs) Don't look at me. It was like six months ago.
0: Okay, what, do you want to give yourself a new name?
1: Um, your... I don't know. Your whipping post.
0: Okay. I'm not even going to ask. I'm your host, Kat, and he's my whipping post, Charles.
1: <laughs> well, if you're not going to ask, I'm not even going to respond.
0: <laughs> Do you want to respond? Nope. Okay. <laughs> what? Why whipping post? <laughs> I can't help myself.
1: Okay, so you're lying to the audience. Um, well, so we should have done this a few days ago last week, but you didn't save your work. And when your pretty recent computer rebooted after crashing, you lost it. And you've been very grumpy about it. And it's not my fault.
0: I have not been. I have not been a whip. You, uh, no. Uh, you did bit. change your name.
1: <laughs> a little bit.
0: <laughs> okay. Anyway, so.
1: And and, and and the fans' whipping post, too. Not one, <laughs> but two people. Hey, let me explain in real quick. What? Two people. Two people. Our lovely bartender at the Flying Saucer and one of the commenters in the group pointed out that I suck. And you're much better as the host. And I would just like to edify everyone that she spends a lot of time preparing weeks and weeks for each episode. She's not, I mean, there are podcasters that just have other people write scripts and they read them and stuff. And obviously we don't do that here. And she gets very stressed out. Is that safe to say? You sometimes get very stressed out preparing for the show.
0: Yes. I'm always, yeah. when I'm writing, I'm, I am i get super stressed out about
1: And you're like, I'm just going to stop. And then after you're done, uh, you're glad you did it. Yes. Right. But she wanted to do one when we were in Palm Springs and it was making her stressed and we're staying at the resort right next to Lazy River. No. Doing it, all
0: this. No, I wasn't getting stressed. it was to me I felt like I didn't have enough information to talk about it for an entire episode. Right. And I tell I do ten hours
1: unscripted radio every week after working all day in the evening and I am somewhat of a chatty Kathy, and I just offered to do it to help because right. you hadn't put it on. You episodes. did a good job, and just all the, my feelings incredibly hurt. I'm crying right now, literally. I think they were trying to compliment sobbing. me,
0: but you have to make everything about because you. Yes, I'm so. the whipping post. Okay. They, they
1: weren't they were complimenting you by criticizing me, and and, and frankly, <laughs> frankly, it's hurtful. And I think I'm going to quit in protest. <laughs> oh wait, I have to do all the production. Never mind.
0: Okay, are we ready? I guess. Okay, today's case is an oldie, but a goodie. If you're from Houston... Is it
1: really good, or is it evil?
0: It's evil. Okay, so not a goodie. I'm going to be difficult. Okay, Okay. so if you're from Houston, you've probably heard of it. I had, but I'd never really looked into it, because I didn't think I could find enough information to talk about it for an entire episode, kind of like the last episode. But I was very wrong. As usual, for my research, I read the Houston Chronicle articles. And as I go through old newspapers, I often get distracted by information and find myself going down rabbit holes. In this case, was no exception. As I was reading the articles, the style of writing by one reporter stood out.
1: Real quick, is it rabbit holes or rabbit trails? I
0: thought it was holes. Is it trails? <laughs>
1: right, go ahead.
0: I hope it's holes. I feel dumb if it's trails. Okay. I've, you you made me lose my place. So, anyway, one reporter stood out, and I felt compelled to give him a Google. His name was Zarco Franks. He was an award-winning journalist for the Houston Chronicle from 1945 until he retired in 1983. An article about his passing in 2010 shared some of his story. A reporter from the Chronicle's former rival, do you know what that is?
1: The Post?
0: Yes, the Houston Post, People that are young, never probably heard of it. Right. um, Said that Zarko was so confident, so cocky, so self-assured, you just hoped some of that would rub off. One of the most important ingredients for a successful journalist is the ability to quickly interview, listen, and gather all the facts of a story. And Zarko was able to do that by memory. Once he was interviewing a mayor who asked him, how are you going to remember what I'm telling you? And the old school reporter calmly told him, if you say anything interesting, I'll remember it.
1: That's brilliant.
0: (laughs) Right? He was an avid reader. His favorite writers were Shakespeare and John Milton. Do you know who that is?
1: Yes, I know who Shakespeare and John Milton I didn't know who John
0: Milton was. (laughs) As we've established, I'm quite ditzy and uneducated, so I had to look it up. And if you're like me and you don't know... He was an English poet from the 1600s. <laughs> How do you? Okay, never take
1: mind. Take that out. Never mind. I'm <laughs> take just, it out. I'm going to leave it alone.
0: Okay, so Zarka was a lover of words. So
1: wait, like in uh, Lee College, freshman English? <laughs> I don't didn't, remember it. It, you, didn't,
0: it didn't stick. I probably learned, but it didn't stick. <laughs> take it out, please.
1: Okay, that's
0: take what she that said. Out. Okay, <laughs> you really need to take that out. <laughs> <laughs> do
1: the show.
0: He, you interrupted me.
1: I know, that's my job.
0: He was a lover of words. Reading and writing them was his life. He said, I like to write urgent stories and get them out in a hurry. That's what this business is about. And that's why I took note of him, because that is what newspaper writing is about, getting the story out quickly. And journalists don't have a lot of time to elaborate or creatively write, but Zarko was different. An editor from his early days in newspaper told him to write it tight, but don't sacrifice the lover's sigh, the tear, and the laugh. And he never forgot those words. And that's why his articles still stand out today. So why am I going on and on about a newspaper writer? You ask?
1: I did not, (laughs) but I was wondering.
0: (laughs) Because I want to start the story with his words. This is how he began an article that I read for this case. This is a review of a distasteful story of horror and unspeakable evil. It is not recommended reading for children subjected to nightmares. This truth... Stranger Than Fiction Mystery Transcends the Fantasy World of Late Weird or Alfred Hitchcock Presents. The review is published for a purpose, to help authorities find a missing witness who may shed light on a macabre crime. This is a review of the torso slangs Mr. and Mrs. Fred C. Rogers, an elderly couple who lived at 1815 Driscoll. He goes on to describe how the Quarter moon hung in the cloud flecked sky. But unfortunately, I can't just steal his words. And I have to tell it in my own ditzy, mispronounced community college can educated we, way. Can we
1: drop the <laughs> ditzy stuff?
0: I don't know. I kind of like it.
1: <laughs> well, if you're going to claim ditzy, could you act ditzy and just be like ditzy and nice? And...
0: <laughs> Alright. So Zarko referred to the case as the torso slangs. But people don't call it that today. Later in the article, He refers to the killer as the Mad Butcher, but that didn't stick either. This is the story of the Icebox Murders, and it's called "Happy Father's Day to Clue."
1: Happy Father's Day to Clue. Yes, that's kind of morbid.
0: It is the whole the whole thing is morbid. Oh wait, this is a true
1: crime podcast. Right, (laughs) right, sorry. Are you ready? Waiting.
0: On Wednesday, June twenty third, nineteen sixty five. A man named Marvin Martin was concerned about his aunt, Edwina Rogers. He'd been trying to reach her for several days, but she wasn't answering his calls. So he went to her home at 1815 Driscoll Street, and when nobody answered the door, he feared for her safety. He relayed those fears to the police, and shortly before 9 p.m., two uniformed patrolmen arrived to assist. Officers Bullock and Barta banged on the door and announced their presence. But still, nobody answered. They tried the door, and when it was locked, they walked around the house and knocked on the back door. And when nobody answered, they forced the door open and entered the one and a half story home. The house was messy, but Marvin said that his aunt wasn't a very good housekeeper. They called out and looked for Edwina and her husband Fred, but they were nowhere to be found. The trio looked for clues to the elderly couple's whereabouts, but they didn't notice anything unusual. Then, for reasons unknown, Officer Bullock decided to open the refrigerator, a decision that would turn the quiet, tree-lined neighborhood into a media frenzy. And, for the three men in the house, life would never be the same. Their lives would forever be separated into before and after the opening of the icebox. I'm going to let Bullock explain what happened when he opened the fridge. If you ever open your refrigerator, there's a little musty smell there. we just open the refrigerator up, you know, just out of curiosity, and when we opened it up, well, all we could see was just meat packed in there. You couldn't have got anything else in there because it was just completely full of meat. As I was getting ready to close the refrigerator, the vegetable being done at the bottom is glass. And uh, as I started to close the refrigerator, well, I seen the head of one of them, and then
1: I knew what the rest of it was.
0: So to recap, the meat that was neatly arranged on the shelves of the refrigerator and freezer were the butchered bodies of Fred and Ebby Rogers, and their gray-haired heads could be seen in the clear plastic vegetable tray. Fred's eyes had been removed, but Ebby's hadn't, and she appeared to be staring up at him. Very creepy. Fred Christopher Rogers was born January 19, 1884. The 81-year-old was a retired real estate salesman who loved to feed the neighborhood squirrels and pigeons in the morning hours.
1: Can you imagine the arc of his life from the late 1800s the wake of the civil war in the deep south living all through jim crow to the the changing times in the late 60s and 70s just the just the evolution of right. music period popular music cars everything right everything and then to have it TV. all end with someone butchering you terrible it's awful
0: Edwina Harmon Rogers was born October eighth, eighteen ninety two, affectionately known as E.B. Ebby, sorry, Ebby. I think it's Ebby.
1: Why are you apologizing <laughs> to me?
0: Because <laughs> people don't like when I mispronounce. Okay, she remember she was remembered for Stop, being. Look, uh, hold on.
1: <laughs> you do the podcast, not for the pittance of dollars you make in advertising. You me.
0: know, if I didn't correct myself, nobody would even know I was mispronouncing stuff. <laughs>
1: Well, people would know because you mispronounce <laughs> stuff sometimes in an um, absurd way. But okay. it's like, who cares? She, don't worry about it.
0: She was remembered for being very active and energetic. She was a home product saleswoman. And you want to guess what the product was? Avon. Tupperware. Tupperware. Oh, I, I, I mispronounced I that. <laughs> I guess I guess she
1: would have said like beauty product instead of home product. I right. I was just, right, but... Yeah, I guess people I, did sell Tupperware door-to-door back in the day.
0: Right. I, I was curious, too. That is what I thought Avon or that or Mary Kay. Right. But I had to find out. and It was Tupperware.
1: Avon, like, I know Mary Kay's a big thing, and it's a Texas-based thing. But for me as a kid, it was always Avon people that come knock on the doors and stuff. True. And it was just weird.
0: Can you imagine doing that for a job now?
1: <laughs> then... I mean, it's safer now. Everybody's tracking oh, with cell phones and everything. Then <laughs> you true. just get snatched up and you're gone and no one knows. And nobody where... knows where you were. Right. That's true. Hey, hey you, didn't you sell stuff door to door? I did. <laughs> I, forgot.
0: I forgot. Take it out. Take it out. In Take the it 80s out. When people Take it shoot. out.
1: <laughs> In high school, right? Like, could you imagine sending our child, even, was, even the boy, was... <laughs> but the girl to walk door to door to sell stuff?
0: Absolutely not. Okay. Change subject. And take that off. Okay. I can cut a penny in, in a into a corkscrew with a pair of scissors, though.
1: Is that something they were they taught you at Cutco? Yeah. And I, <laughs> the only reason I know it's Cutco because we still have a set of Cutco knives. That Wait, you were, I still
0: have the scissors too.
1: Right, and they're great scissors and knives. I mean, we've bought expensive knives. We have that like right. But they these, still work fine. The, like Swedish knives, or what? What do we get? Some ridiculously expensive chef's knife set. <laughs> But yeah, those those were great knives. We need
0: to take all this out, though. I don't want people knowing that about me. Well, hey, uh, you
1: got to be honest with you. Got to okay. be authentic with your audience. Do I? <laughs> she sold Cutco knives door to door in the '80s. What is it? Late 80s? '80s,
0: right? I think or was, it was it in the 90s, '90s, like 1990? Yeah, we we're in high school. No, I think it was after high school. I think it was like right after high school.
1: Okay, so '91.
0: Let's stop talking about how old I am. Okay, sorry. Okay, so what started out as a welfare check had become a double murder and the case was turned over to homicide detectives who quickly arrived and began their investigation. There was no sign of forced entry. Considering the brutal nature of the crime, there was very little blood in the home. Someone had done an impressive job of cleaning the scene, but investigators were able to find trace amounts of blood on several items, including a claw hammer, a straight razor, a keyhole saw, and within the blades of the saw were small ple- pieces of human flesh.
1: So used, whoever did it used the saw to chop them up? Yes. This is gruesome.
0: Right? Traces of blood were also found on the walls, the kitchen, the stairs, and the floor in the downstairs bedroom. A blood-spattered jacket was found in the upstairs bedroom of the home. Whoever killed the Rogers had worn the raincoat as they butchered the bodies.
1: Very Dexter, right?
0: Right? Blood was also found on the cotton dress that Mrs. Rogers had been wearing at the time of her death. The remains were sent to the morgue at Bentop Hospital, where Dr. Robert Buckland reconstructed them and performed the autopsies. He determined that Mr. Rogers was beaten to death with the claw hammer. His eyes had been gouged out of their sockets, and his genitals were removed. Mrs. Rogers had been severely beaten and shot in the head. Her breasts were severed, and her sex organs were mutilated. I'm not sure which injuries were before or after death, but evidence showed that Mrs. Rogers lived for at least 20 minutes after the attack began.
1: Jesus.
0: it's a long time. A
1: long time of brutal torture.
0: Right. The manner in which the bodies were butchered suggested that the killer had knowledge of human anatomy. One medical examiner said whoever did this apparently took their time and knew what they were doing. The dismembering was a fairly neat job. Both had been dismembered at the joints of the ankles, knees, hips, shoulders, wrists, and elbows. The heads were severed at the neckline, their chest cavities were open, and the spines were removed and cut in half.
1: Why on earth would you take the time to, I mean, cut somebody's spine in half?
0: I'm thinking whoever did this didn't wanted a long time before anybody found them.
1: Did we not we don't know who did it? Well, I don't know. Okay. Don't. Okay, sorry.
0: But I don't know. I don't know why they took so That's much time doing just this, awful. but I'm thinking to get them in the refrigerator so that they don't. But I don't okay. know. All I right. have no idea. It's pretty this boring. is lawful. The entrails of both victims were missing. But they were found two days later when several neighbors complained about a stench coming from the sewer. Investigators trolled the line and recovered human body parts, including lungs, kidneys, liver, intestines, and viscera. Do you know what viscera is?
1: Yeah, it's like the stomach stuff, right?
0: (laughs) The stomach stuff? Yeah, I, I asked our daughter, who's in medical school, and she said that it's the layer of tissue that surrounds an organ
1: okay well that sounds nasty right but did, so they found it did someone flush it or did it like throw it in the sewer
0: I'm assuming they flushed it but I'm not okay I'm not sure how they got there
1: that's just so creepy like taking out all their organs and putting it in your toilet and flushing it down like right it's just awful
0: Dr. Buckland estimated that the murders happened three days before the discovery of the bodies on June 20th which was. What do you mean? Father's Day. <laughs> Thought you'd know uh, the answer to that.
1: <laughs> no. No one may you know. It's not that's like the least important of the holidays.
0: <laughs> so speaking of Father's Day, during their lives the Rogers had four children. The first child, a daughter, was born May fourth, nineteen sixteen. Sadly, she died during or shortly after birth. A year later, on May 26 nineteen seventeen, Ebbie gave birth to a son, who also died during or shortly after.
1: Oh, Jesus. I mean, that infant mortality was... So high back so then. So high back I mean, it was, but not uncommon, still horrible, still horrifying.
0: Right. Finally, on March 15th, 1919, a healthy daughter named Betty Charlotte Rogers was born. And two years later, on December 30th, 1921, a healthy son named Charles Frederick Rogers joined the family.
1: So they did kind of like my family. What do you mean? Well, Charlotte and Charles...
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So my, both my grandfathers, my headstands, happened to be named Charles. But my great-grandfather, who was a dairy farmer and a Texas ranger, was named Charles. And I have all these relatives like Charla Lee and Charlotte and Charlinda. All these obnoxious, because my grandfather was the youngest of five. And he was the first boy. So you have all these variants of Charles that are just they're all charlotte's not as bad as like charlinda or charlotte lee <laughs> but i don't charles is just not a great name like i don't get it like i'm the fourth and I, we don't have a fifth i mean i was like yeah no this is over anyway go ahead
0: okay i forgot where i was hold I, on, hold on. <laughs> i'm sorry
1: I, you taught you said charlotte and charles you named the boy okay
0: so on august 18th 1929 tragedy struck the rogers family again when 10-year-old Charlotte was killed in a car accident.
1: Oh, that's awful.
0: So the only Rogers child that made it to adulthood was Charles. The couple had lived in the home at least 10 years. And though most neighbors were unaware, the couple did not live alone. 43-year-old Charles was living in the upstairs bedroom of their house, which I believe was a converted attic.
1: And how are people not aware?
0: We'll get into that. Charles's room was where police found the raincoat, the one with blood on it. Right. Apparently, he was really into music because there were several musical instruments in the room, including a saxophone, an electric organ, a French horn, a mandolin, and a trombone. One of the first articles that I read of Zarco's, the one that got my attention, was this sentence. He said, perhaps in his solitude, he found solace in music within the tight confines of his lonely world.
1: Well, that's kind of bleak. Right? <laughs> and, and, and if he was the murderer, which I don't know, it seems overly sympathetic to a monster. But anyhow, go ahead.
0: Okay. So he had a makeshift kitchen up there with a hot plate, a toaster, a coffee pot. He had cans of food. And a few utensils on a piece of tin foil on the hardwood floor.
1: So he could just stay up there, locked right. in, shut in.
0: There was a ham radio, a ham radio license, a commercial pilot's license, a license for instrumentation. Yes. <laughs> I didn't finish the word on that. I was like, what was I going for? There you go. Honorable discharge papers from the Navy. And on the nightstand was a twenty two caliber pistol but Charles was nowhere to be found. When his cousin, Detective George Martin, was asked about him, he described him as morning fog, saying he just faded in and faded out. He had only seen him twice in the ten years before the murders, and he told reporters, I saw him about a year ago near the downtown library. I spoke to him, and he completely ignored me. Either he didn't hear me, or he was in another world. The other time he saw him was ten years ago. He said, when I went to my aunt's house on Driscoll, he fixed my car radio. People know so little about him that when relatives called his home, his parents asked about him, their own son.
1: Wow, that's weird.
0: Marvin, the nephew, knew that Charles lived there but rarely saw him. Somehow, in the middle of Houston, he went unnoticed. Every day, he would leave the house before sunrise, and every night, he would get back in the middle of the night. What would he do? Nobody knows. In a statement, Marvin told police that his aunt was concerned about Charles and told him that one time she talked to a doctor about it, but she was advised to just leave him alone and not agitate him by trying to get him to go to a doctor. Wow. The Rogers also had a maid, which kind of conflicts with the house being so messy, but right. I guess ours gets messy. <laughs> I guess everybody's gets messy. Yes. But... So she worked for the Rogers for five years, and she had never once saw Charles. That's creepy. She recounted a time that Mrs. Rogers had once said that he jumped on his dad and began choking him. Mrs. Rogers' co-worker said that she called the house at 9 a.m. on Father's Day and spoke with a man that she assumed was Charles. She'd never met him, but she knew that he lived there. Whoever answered the call said that Ebby wasn't there and hung up. Very little was known about the mysterious son. But here is some information authorities were able to gather from his past. He began his college education at Texas A&M, but was only there for about a month. He graduated with a B.S. in physics from the University of Houston, where he made all A's. He joined the Navy during World War II. His discharge papers showed he was a radio and electrical technician first class with 30 months of overseas service. He worked at Shell Oil as a member of the Seismograph crew.
1: So he's an intelligent person. Very. Achieved.
0: And it, it, I believe that he worked that job in Canada. Okay. He left that job in April of 1957, and nobody knows why. And Social Security showed no payments made to his account since. I'm not sure when the family home was purchased, but Mrs. Rogers told people that Charles bought it with money that he saved from the Navy.
1: Why would it be Navy money and not shell oil money?
0: I have no idea. His driver's license expired in August of 41 and showed no violations. He had no known friends or companions. He was a pilot and owned a Cessna plane, and investigators found trips he made from Sugarland's Hull Airfield to Austin about 18 months before the murders. Supposedly, he was selling purification equipment, but his landings were not recorded. Hank says hi. Should we put him up?
1: It's completely up to you.
0: From everything I read, the only person who reported seeing Charles on a regular basis was a dry cleaner on West Gray, who reported that he was a frequent customer. He said that the last time he saw him was June 17th, three days before the murders. Apparently, he left his house every day, And so his parents never saw him. Their only communication with him was slipping notes under his door.
1: That's super weird and creepy.
0: Right. He was 140 pounds, and depending on which article you read, he was either 5'5 or 5'7 with dark brown eyes and brown receding hair. And the most current photo that they could find of him was from nine years before when he worked at Shell. Police asked the public for help locating Charles. They never publicly called him a suspect, just a possible material witness. Homicide detective L.D. Morrison Jr. said, We need to talk to this son in the hope that he can add something to what we know. There were several leads, but they went nowhere. A day after the murders, a man with a receding hairline, mascarat eyebrows, and a pencil-thin mustache inquired about a job at Floor Corp. He said he was looking to work as a welder for immediate overseas duty in Japan or Australia. He said his name was Pitts and refused to answer any questions about his employment history. He took an application and said he'd mail it in, but never did. The floor employee said he was absolutely sure that it was Rogers.
1: Wow. That's creepy.
0: Right?
1: Penciled in eyebrows? Right. (laughs) Like, who doesn't think that's going to look noticeable and weird to see a grown man with penciled eyebrows?
0: Right. On July 9th, a man was arrested in Walker County. He ID'd himself as Charles Rogers. Two Huntsville men ID'd him as Rogers as well. One was a state prison employee who said that he lived with Rogers for three years in the 40s while attending school in Huntsville. I think he took classes at Sam Houston, but didn't graduate. Don't quote me. The other was a Huntsville officer who said he was childhood friends with Charles. But the man's fingerprints didn't match him. The man in custody was ID'd as William C. Hughes, Jr., who was only 27. And remember, Charles was 43.
1: Wait, an officer claimed that it was in Two fact, officers. That it was- in, Can you be- Imagine how horrifying that would be. Right. To be detained, accused of a horrifying double No, the homicide.
0: man ID'd himself as Charles Rogers-
1: Oh, originally, and sorry. then
0: two people said, "Yeah, that's him. I know him," but it okay, wasn't so him. Is someone it makes no attention. sense. Well, you have
1: false confessions, but how do
0: you have two people that know him well that say, because, "Yeah, that's him"?
1: Because people want to be part of a story when he's twenty-seven. Yeah, but people want to be part of something. They want to be help put the
0: the, okay. the well, bracelets
1: c- on the bad guy.
0: I couldn't find a picture of him, but he was reportedly six foot tall and had green eyes and looked nothing like him.
1: Like I said, people want to be part of something. And, I think that's and, what it was. And, well, I mean, false confessions are driven by all kinds of, I mean, sometimes you have false confessions driven by police interrogation, but it sounds like this guy just offered himself up, right? But
0: why would two people say it was him? Because I they thought wanted, it was so strange.
1: Because people lie, and police lie just like people lie. I mean, they, you know, just as many, there's just as so many dishonest cops as there are dishonest people, and honest people, and honest cops, and... Uh, sometimes people want to be a part of something. They want to be a part of helping catch the bad guy, even though it's not the actual bad guy.
0: Okay, so in April of 1967, someone reported seeing Charles at a Houston hotel. Three years after the murder, on in June of 68, police in Lawton, Oklahoma, received a report that a man resembling Charles, named Rogers, was overheard saying how easy it, it would be To murder someone in Texas and get away with it again, seeking attention.
1: Well, you never know. I mean, it could have been him, but a lot of times it's just attention seekers.
0: So the Roger, so those leads went nowhere. Right. The Rogers' home remained vacant for years. Police would occasionally check on it, and in August of 1970, they found a message in the dining room that said, "I killed my mother and father. I am the killer." Again, probably. I mean, attention who knows? seekers. Right. I don't know. Who
1: knows? It'd be super creepy that he'd, he'd risk it all to go back there and leave a note like that, right?
0: Eventually, the home was torn down, and what was? Let's talk about where we went. We went there,
1: right? It was it was Nuts. a row of townhomes, right?
0: I think it's just two,
1: right? Two, but two attached townhomes, right? Yes. Yeah.
0: And. Is that all we want to say about it? (laughs) I mean, it's
1: very, it's walkable from our house. It's, it's, I I think it's called Hyde Park is our Highland Park. I don't know the name. They called
0: it Cherryhurst in the
1: Okay, Cherryhurst is a beautiful little neighborhood just north of us, just on the north side of Westheimer. Very quiet, lovely park in the middle. I thought it was a little bit west of Cherryhurst. Maybe. But it's, it's in an area that's being gentrified over the last couple of decades uh, and it's in the you know near us in the center of town adjacent to Montrose it's a lovely walkable part of Houston we walk there all the time
0: okay so in 1975 10 years after his parents were murdered Charles Rogers was declared dead his inheritance was dispersed and his life officially ended but what happened to him remains a mystery to this day
1: Right, I mean, he very well could have been a weirdo and all that, but he could have been killed by the same murderer and just kidnapped or disappeared. Although it doesn't sound like it, it could sounds be. like could he be. murdered his parents and then, But could you imagine brutal? I mean, he like brutally murdering your your mother while cutting up her genitalia. That just doesn't seem like something a son would do, right. even a psychopath for a son.
0: Right. So here are some theories. The first one is like you said, maybe he was killed as well, but his body was disposed of somewhere else. The second one, one relative said that he had a habit of going off in the big thicket. What's that?
1: The big, it is, it's the piney woods of, it's northeast of us, East Texas.
0: Okay. So apparently he he would go there. I don't know. This podcast just constantly makes me feel stupid. Okay. The big thicket, you know, that thing. It's the woods (laughs) in in
1: Eastern Texas, Southeast Texas woods. It's if you
0: call it fifty nine. It's oh no, okay. So he would go there and stay there for weeks, living off the land. So maybe he went there and spent the remainder of his life in solitude. Some suggested that he went to Mexico or Canada, two places that he'd been known to go in the past. I mean,
1: it makes sense. Uh, If you butcher your parents, you should probably go to one of those. Yeah, Right.
0: right. There was a rumor that he moved to a small religious town where they outlawed singing and dancing.
1: So, Footloose, <laughs> Ohio, or Indiana? I don't remember what state Footloose was I don't know where it was Footloose either. Was I just in. threw that in. <laughs> okay, so we got to do a Kevin Spacey you're over by See if you're dance. paying attention. Right. In
0: 1991, there was an article about...
1: Did I just say Kevin Spacey instead of did, Kevin You did. It's Kevin Bacon. Bacon. <laughs> What's wrong with me? Ditchy. Didn't they have a... Footloose remake for the kids?
0: I don't know. Did they? I think they had like a live.
1: Well, no, but I think there was a remake with like Julie and a hoof or, H- you know, the Dance with the Stars. I don't yeah, know. That's what
0: I thought was like a live one. But maybe yeah. I'm wrong. Maybe yeah. it was. I don't, I don't know. know.
1: I didn't see it. If, it. if it ain't got John Lithgow as the bad guy preacher, <laughs> I'm not interested. In
0: 1991, there was an article by about two private investigators named John Craig and Phil Rogers. No relation who were writing a book about Charles. In the article, they claimed to have evidence that he was working for the CIA. They said he worked as a cryptographer for naval intelligence during the war, and he had all the right credentials to be recruited by the CIA. And at the time, it was common for agents to work for oil companies because it was a perfect cover. They said he was probably the best communications expert the CIA ever had. Above his room in the attic, he had an antenna that was overlooked by police during the initial investigation. And the PIs said that he used it to communicate with other agents.
1: Or he just used it for ham radio like thousands of Americans did back then.
0: Maybe. They also revealed that after graduating from U of H, Charles went to the University of Texas and took classes in nuclear physics and advanced electrical engineering. According to their theory, Charles remained a CIA operative until the mid-80s. They also said that he was in Dallas when JFK was killed and may have played a role in it.
1: I think these people <laughs> just wanted attention. I think if you're a CIA operative of that caliber, you don't show up at floor with your eyebrows drawn in, demanding to work overseas a few days after you've committed a murder out of desperation to flee with money or flee with a job. Which I think was sounds accurate. That's the only the only sighting or presence after the fact that sounds authentic is that one. Okay, to me, and I don't think if you're a, this hyper intelligent CIA operative, it sounds more like he took some continuing education courses in his field of study at UT, and they're trying to make a mountain out of a molehill to make the story more interesting, which is a bit okay. bit awful.
0: But who doesn't like a good? conspiracy story conspiracy theory story
1: i mean i'm not i don't think you should sensationalize a double homicide and give somebody this 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 fictional backstory of being a super sleuth cia operative just to get some attention for your narrative true now is there a photo of him <laughs> on the grassy knoll or something i mean if that's the case then shut my mouth but
0: kind of but not oh, really. Oh
1: well okay go ahead
0: so just after the assassination, three men were arrested and photographed as they were taken into custody.
1: Was one of them him?
0: There's no. The, let me. Are you gonna let me tell it? Sorry, You're making me all like getting mixed up. Okay, so there was there were three men arrested and they were photographed as they were taken into custody. There's no record of their arrest, and they were released without being questioned. The trio were nicknamed the Tramps. They were never identified. But rumor has it that one of the men was Charles Rogers. And according to the PIs, he had disappeared for five months after the assassination. And when he resurfaced, his mother was onto him. And that was the motive for the murders.
1: His mother somehow deduced what the rest of America and the the investigative geniuses of this country couldn't. Right. I mean, that's the thing. I I think there's more to the JFK assassination story, but come on.
0: (laughs) Okay. So he was fluent in Spanish as well as several other languages.
1: Sounds like an intelligent, awful person.
0: And the PIs said that they thought at the time of the article, which was in 91, that he was living in Guatemala.
1: So why didn't they go down to Guatemala and find out? I don't know. And it just sounds like these people, did they write a book? Did they get some attention? So they they were
0: writing a book at the time. I did not look into if it was written because I knew if I did, I'd end up reading it and it would prolong this longer and I didn't want to.
1: So you half asked is that what I did. Okay. And
0: I know people are always like, oh, well, you should listen to this podcast. And it's literally a series on one case, which, yeah, you're going to get a whole lot of information, a whole lot more information from people who do that. Okay, than so somebody is. who just does one episode. Okay, I'm okay. sorry. I did not read every book written on the subject, I, Charles. I, I
1: don't know. I, I think I speak for all the audience, <laughs> and we are all incredibly disappointed.
0: <laughs> okay. next, I'll just do next three months on one case.
1: Nobody wants that. Just do little by little. A
0: lot of podcasts do that, though. Okay. Seems like it'd be a lot easier. Well, do that. Maybe I will. I'll take a vote. People want me to do that.
1: No, we don't listen. We don't, we don't take our cues from okay. people consuming free content with complaints.
0: Okay, we should just take all that out. Okay. So a homicide detective looked into the claims by the private investigators, and he said, from the police point of view, we have listened to everything they have said, and it's a plausible theory. There's quite a bit of substantiation in regard to the information they have come up with.
1: I don't buy, I don't know. You know, I'm, there are CIA operatives. I've known people that have been approached by the CIA, and it's all very clandestine and weird. But again, I don't think you draw your eyebrows on and go try to get a welder's job at Floor to escape the country. I, I just don't, I'm not buying it. I'm not having it.
0: So the, the last one that I'm going to tell you about is true crime authors Hugh and Martha Gardner. Claimed to have debunked the CIA theory. And they say he escaped to Honduras and was pickaxed to death when a business venture went south.
1: I mean, I like that. If he's if he's the one that butchered his mother's genitals while keeping her alive for twenty minutes and claw hammered his dad's eyeballs out, then I like the pickaxe death story.
0: That's the one you're going with?
1: I, I mean, that's the one. If, he, if he's guilty, I mean, he could have just been murdered and disappeared, right?
0: Right. The thing that I can't, that I think about a lot when I was thinking about this case is the dry cleaner. Right. He's leaving every day. He's gone all day, every single day. Nobody knows where he is, and he goes to the dry cleaner. He had to have had a job. Yeah. So what was he doing? And he was so smart. He's a pilot, an engineer,
1: I mean, he very well could have been in the CIA. But I, I would, he, I would, I would hope that the CIA could tell if they were employing someone that was so either so much of a psychopath or a sociopath that they would dismantle their mother's genitalia. I, I just can't get over that. Like, why would but, you? That's why I think there's a chance it wasn't him. Because that's who, what I was even, say. even the most evil person.
0: Right. right. Well, who would do that? And if he was really- Who would the... do that? Somebody would do that to the family members right. of a CIA agent. That's
1: what I was going to point out. That that yeah, I, I find it more plausible that if he was in the CIA, that someone else went in there and tortured his parents to death in right. front of him as a form of torture for him and then took him and killed him to create the implication or... that he was- culpable
0: the, or then he's afraid for his life and doing the drawn on the eyebrows and all that trying to get out of the country no
1: i think that they pray if, if it was someone because he was working in a clandestine American governmental agency i would imagine they did that in front of him to make his death like all the watch. more worse right and then because yeah i mean you're clawing the old man's the the dad's eyeballs out you're like brutally rape torturing the mom and then you take him and kill him somewhere else. And then you create the false implication that he's guilty, which still seems to linger very clearly. And then you disappear him. And It seems right. like a horrible, evil way to exact some sort of anger or revenge on someone that maybe thwarted your evil plans against America or somewhere in some developing nation.
0: So another interesting thing was that police reported at the time that they saw no connection between two previous torso killings in the area. At the time, those victims were not identified. Wait, what? Yeah, so one was a woman who was found near Shepard in 1962, and the other was a middle-aged man found in Fort Bend County in 1964. So and how four were they similar? Torso murders.
1: They were they were. Dismembered. decapitated okay
0: I think that's all that, that well, it, I don't know does that mean they cut off the arms and legs and head
1: I mean deca-
0: cut up I, I, don't know. I don't know I don't really know what torso know. murders means apparently that was a saying back then but I don't think people say that now
1: right well I mean hopefully not I don't know <laughs> this is this is awful so
0: there were four torso murders whatever the heck they are <laughs> right. in Houston in three years That's a lot. So
1: maybe he felt like he was a serial killer or maybe he was in fact a serial killer and got away with it. Yeah, maybe. One or the other.
0: Don't know. So that's it. We talked about where we went. The house is no longer there, like we said. Um, But we have pics of what it used to look like. The pics are black and white, but it was a yellow brick frame house. And we will post the pictures that we took along with other relevant pictures to our Facebook group, which is Cluston Podcast, and our Instagram, which is Cluston. And if you like Cluston, tell your friends about us and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. And until next time, mind your peas and clues.